Hey, what's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Philcraft Survival Podcast. It's your host, Mike. I'm here with Kevin today. Hey, what's up? Hey, before we get to the podcast, let's talk about our sponsors. We are sponsored by Killcliffe. I'm actually sipping on the Ignite Fruit Punch Knockout. I'm a big fan of the CBD Killcliffe as well. In fact, we just got the new Joe Rogan ones. You guys can go to killcliffe.com and get all these online. Uh, use the code SURVIVAL10 to save 10%. Big fan of Killcliffe for multiple reasons, including their drink is awesome, but they also support and advocate for veteran um, nonprofits. And their support of the Navy SEAL Foundation has helped them out a lot. And I'm all about that advocacy. Killcliffe.com, use SURVIVAL10 to save 10% on checkout. We're also sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. Look, Triarch Systems has been doing custom guns since day one. If you haven't realized it already, we're in a lull of being able to get anything gun related. Uh, black powder rifles are probably available on the open market, but anything else is hard to find. Custom guns are still available. If you go to TriarchSystems.com and use for Philcraft one word, you can save 5% on your next build and you can get a custom pistol, carbine, rifle, the list goes on. My favorite is the Tri-11 made by Triarch Systems. I have two of them. That's what, that's how uh, good it is. Um, but if you go to Triarch Systems, make sure you use that code Philcraft. And big shout out to Chris, Jimmy, and all the guys at TriarchSystems.com. Also, we are sponsored by KC Highlights. KC Highlights, the first time I fell in love with them was that Back to the Future Toyota Hilux, that old Hilux, the black Hilux that had the KC Highlights on the, on the back of the truck bed. KC Highlights sponsors this podcast, but also sponsors our mobility section. And we're going to have KC Highlights on our rig, uh, which is sponsored at King of the Hammers. Derek Miller, Mike Hernandez, big shout out. Uh, working with Philcraft Mobility, we got a sponsored truck in King of the Hammers that happens to be a Toyota, which is really cool. And it's going to have KC Highlights on the rig. Stay tuned for that because uh, if you go to at Philcraft Mobility on Instagram, you'll be able to see the buildup and the actual race on February 5th. Again, kchighlights.com. Go, to, go uh, to the website and use Philcraft one word to save 10% on any purchase at KC Highlights. Hey guys, today I had the opportunity to catch up with Kevin and we talked about 2020 uh, in reflection, talked about self-reliance, talked about family preparedness and really our priorities at Philcraft Survival going into the future. 2021 is going to be different than 2020 for Philcraft Survival. You are your own first response was the motto. We're focusing on family preparedness. Uh, 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 Kevin's going to have to come up with a new uh, motto for me uh, for 2021. But focused on you as an individual and developing you in preparedness so that you could also develop your family. All about self-reliance on this podcast. And here we go. Kevin Owens. Hey, what's up? He <laughs> caught me off guard there. I, my my uh, sole role is to catch you off guard every single day. I know. You're like, hey, let's do a podcast. I'm like, what are we talking about? I'm not telling you until we start. That's it. I, well, here's what I've realized that people can't do. They can't do that. No Improvise? Well, none of these people, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of people in the industry who claim to be experts. Mm-hmm. It, they only have, it's like the, it's like an onion, right? There's, there's only so many don't claim layers. to be an expert in anything. Yeah, so it you, takes the pressure off. It does. Exactly. <laughs> um, but they, you have to be able to reference and source, uh, your own experiences, um, 
in talking about mm. education, especially in preparedness. Right. And so if you're just reading statistics and regurgitating that, mm-hmm. it's not effective. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've said that when I'm teaching. I'll be like, look, there's stuff I don't know. I'm, I'm telling you from my experience what I think, but I don't know what I don't know, right? And, and uh, everybody is like that, but, but some people think they know everything, right? Well, and but I think I, partly I, is we're so old. We have so many experiences. Don't put me and you in the same age Dude, bracket. Uh, man, yeah. if our combined ages were, were dead. But we have, <laughs> we have an accumulation of so many experiences in this kind of field that we probably have an example, not just in ourselves, but people that we've worked with. Mm-hmm. I mean, think, think about one ODA and all their experiences they've had yeah. that we know about. Yeah. Like I know uh, Damon went to uh, back to Afghanistan mm-hmm. and had this uh, epic trip, right? Mm-hmm. Brian left and he got shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these got a kit, you know? Yeah. Like, there's all these people where we probably have a reference for the things that we're talking about. And tying that in with things that we don't know because yeah. we've researched it, I think that's that's how you should do it. I, I think um, you know we've operated in cold weather, we've operated in hot weather, we've I've never I've never operated in the jungle, and I hope I never do. Oh, you no, know dude, that would kill me. Yeah, yeah, that that would suck. But I think the, um, the piece where I was in Somalia for almost a year, and you were in Yemen when you're a contractor. And I think that piece where you you don't have that big infrastructure behind you, the, the quick reaction force, the medical facilities, the, the, the whole, like when we were in Iraq, we had the whole weight of the US government behind us with, with helicopter gunships and anything we needed. And that's one set of experience, but as contractor uh, running security operations in a really bad place, you have nobody with you. You had no QRF, you had no medical facilities in a lot of cases. So I think that piece where we both worked that world brings a lot, um, it brings a different element to to uh, to our experiences, right? Because a lot of people don't have that background. Yeah, it, that's. I think that's spot on because I, I remember you telling me about an operation that you did in Afghanistan that was considered low vis and the guys wanted to do low vis and you wanted to load out the rig yeah and and th- their idea in minimalist their idea of low vis low visibility is minimizing uh, their overall signature but also their ability to to effectively respond yeah and so th- i think a lot of people who've grew up in the military don't really understand what that thing is where you where what are the considerations and potential worst case scenarios in an environment where you're fending for yourself with minimal support and when you live that mm-hmm. I, I lived it at the tail end of my career you had the uh, benefit of doing it before which yeah. gave you perspective when you when you were in i i realized that that lifestyle of not having um support in response to a first responder was how the rest of the world lives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in a semi-permissive environment Mm -hmm. and that's scary. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I got to Somalia, one of the questions I asked was like medical, you know, and they're like, uh, we have a medical kit in the truck, but that's it. And uh, one of the guys actually got shot when I was there, one of the contractors and we took him to the, uh, the, I think it was run by like the Pakistani military, but it was for locals. It was for local people. And he was shot in the hand. And um, we took him in there. And of course, we, we put 
pushed our way to the front of the line and the guy took out a needle and thread that he'd used on somebody else and cut off and had it soaking in alcohol. And he pulled it out to sew his hand up. Wow. And this guy was a Brit. He was like, you're not putting that needle in me. Get a fucking new one. You know wow. I mean? Yeah, you know. But had it been worse than that, um, I, I don't know what we would have done. We probably would have had to go to a Somali doctor and try to, to bribe him to, to treat us. But we really didn't have a plan, you know. Uh, I, I think that comes... Uh, the confidence of youth, I guess, you know, but we're in a lot of gunfights mm. and uh, n no support, like no cure. Nobody was coming to save us mm. um, if we got in a bad situation. Like the UN told us at one point, because it was a UN mission. They're like, yeah, you guys are contractors. We don't support you. So we're like, okay, roger that. Well, I think that's the start point um, in kind of discovering the best practice and how you're looking at preparedness, which is you have, you ask yourself the question, like, what do we do in this worst case scenario that we've lined out? And, and you're going to find the gaps mm -hmm. and then filling those gaps by being creative is, is sometimes the best thing, right? I, I think people forget, like here, here's a, here's a, here's an example in a rural, um, in very typical situation. You, say you live far away from a hospital. Most people, because they're not willing to put in the effort or they, they don't, it's lack of education, but also misunderstanding. They go, okay, I'm two hours from a, a hospital. I'm going to live my life in freedom and just do what I do. I'm going to hunt, I'm going to fish, I'm going to hike. Any one of those things have inherent risk. So if the contingency is I'm going to just figure out a way to get to the hospital two hours away, then you're setting yourself up for disaster. But instead, if you said, hey, how can I fill the gap? Is there a way for me to be educated on saving my family's life or my own life? That's to me what reliance is, because mm -hmm. people think in this example, and, I, and I've, I've belabored this over the years. Uh, I went to EMT school as, a, as an E5 uh, in the infantry. Um, and it was, a, it was this weird condensed combat lifesaver course where mm -hmm. they gave you your EMT cert. It was kind of Mickey Mouse, but it was kind of like a fast track to get your EMT yeah. qualification. Yeah. And this is in the 90s. It's like, called the Combat Life Combat Lifesaver course. So yeah. we, used to, we used to joke and call it the Combat Life Taker course, you know? Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It didn't have the best yeah. of, of techniques. And, and everything, everything in the 90s was check the box, right? All, all garrison. It, it all became very, very real after 9 11. But, but some of the garrison stuff, it was very, very, yeah, you know. So if my, my thinking was, Back then, when I would ask the question like, hey, why don't we do tourniquet? Like, why aren't you applying tourniquets? Well, it's liability this, liability that. Or I started teaching med courses and guys were like, well, you're not a medic. And I'm like, yeah. oh, interesting. So you have to be a medic? Yeah. Well, what it, does that mean? It was so bad. I remember a guy doing P, one of our E5s running PT in the 90s and he did like a reverse push-up, like you're sitting and you're pushing up on the back and the, the platoon sergeant stopped him. Shh, can't teach that. You're it's not, a not No, it's not in the army PT manual. Wow. Yeah, that's how bad it was, yeah. Yeah. And, so and, I, and it sets you up for failure when you go into combat yeah. and you haven't trained realistically like that. And, and it, there was a lot of mistakes made early in the GWAT because of the way we'd been training since Vietnam 
yeah. pretty much. You know? Well, that that it's weird because of that institutional culture. Yeah, it makes it it makes its way down to civilians. Which the greatest thing about being a civilian is you could be a free thinker. Mm. You could actually be an independent singleton doing whatever you want to do because there's little to no limitations. Mm. So if, if for example, when I used to teach Stop the Bleed, people would ask me like, hey, what are your qualifications? Well, I'm teaching you something technical. Yeah. I don't have a, I'm not a paramedic. Mm-hmm. I'm not an 18 Delta, a special forces medic. I'm not a doctor. But all the things I'm teaching you are technical. I've trained them in TCCC. I've trained them for part of my job in contracting, part of my job in the military. So I'm teaching you something technical and you think you have to have an academic certification in order to be able to know that information, Mm -hmm. which is I think what people don't understand that are normal civilians. If you could build a car in your garage off of a YouTube video, you could stop the bleed Mm -hmm. on on yourself or your family and that, that whole framework for the way you look at things should be the way that you become self more self-reliant. Yeah, yeah I have less and less respect, honestly, for academic qualifications, oh, man. man. I've, seen, I've seen guys with marketing degrees who, who can't market, like you, you're good at marketing, right? Because you've been doing it for years, right? You don't have a marketing degree, but you know more than most people with a marketing degree and, and media and stuff. The more I see these pieces of paper, I'm like, the less I, I, I care about it. I think something that uh, I just thought of there, when we went to Montana and did the, the resilience course, something we take for granted, we went up there, we're in very rural area, limited cell phone signal, but Pete Chambers, who, who works, does medical stuff for us, who's a doctor and a Green Beret officer, Pete went up there the weekend before and he built a whole medevac plan, primary alternate contingency emergency, helicopter landing zones, frequencies to, to get... Um, um, Medevac, uh, phone numbers, actually went to the, the local level one trauma facility and talked to a person, and, you know what I mean, and said, is this the number I call? Is there any limitations on time, on weekends? And I went in there and built this primary alternate contingency and emergency medevac plan for that particular mission. And that, that actually might be a good thing for us to put on our site or something like that yeah. as, as a template that people can pull and then fill in the blanks. Hey, I'm going, I'm going camping and I've never been there before. Let me come up with a, with a medevac plan in case something happens because people fall, get tripped, get bit by snakes and, and all kinds of stuff. So that that's a, a great example of stuff that we, we did really, really well in the military mm. to build that uh, self-reliance and, and that, that ability to, to, to react to something bad that, that we can, we can uh, push down. But I, I, I think um, when you are in the military your whole life, you do, other than the contractor stuff, you do get very tied to having the big mechanism to come get you. And I, I when you were talking about the guys doing low vis stuff, I, I did see that. Like I, I looked at it differently. I looked at it worst case scenario, whereas they looked at it as um, nobody will compromise us, right? Well, those people who live in those neighborhoods know in, in an instant, they take more than a three second look at you. They're going to know your beard's not going to fool them. They're mm-hmm. going to know you're an American and they, or they're going to know something is off and you're in a bad situation, man. That, that quick reaction force got to come get you. Then you need to be able to sustain yourself for, it could be 10 minutes. It could be an hour and that, mm-hmm. that's tough to do. Right. And then you've got to, you've got to have mechanisms in where that QRF comes over the hill with a striker with a, with a private behind the gun that he doesn't open fire on you as well because he sees you in a man dress and a beard and, a, and an MP5 and he thinks you're a bad guy. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that I think 
not enough people look at the worst case scenario. And, I, and I'm sure you ran into that in, in some of the bad places you were in because you were the, the QRF, right? You were the, the only mechanism for defense with those case officers you were with, right? Yeah, I think a lot of it had to do with um, just uh, standard behaviors and getting used to a routine. Yeah. And the thing, the, the, the one of the problems with uh, trying to live a preparedness lifestyle is pulling yourself out of complacency, which which often is is correlated to routine. Mm. So when you get in a routine, you do the simple, same, convenient, comfortable things. When things are going to go bad, you're going to miss that thing that's going to be bad because um, the, the preparation for preparing for the bad typically is conscious. It's like you have to be awake to do that. So the redundancy in that routine, you just get used to doing stuff. And I had to come in, like I remember as a new GRS guy, like when I, when I went into uh, specific countries to specific bases, I, 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 had, I was the fresh eyes. And I had good team leaders who were like, hey, you're the fresh eyes, mm-hmm. you're the new guy, tell us what's wrong. And you know, we're not hired because we're scaling into expertise, we're hired because we're experts scaling into security. Mm-hmm. So. I looked at it and went, there's a whole bunch of issues here. And and it, I made things very uncomfortable because people had to step outside of the routine. Like one of the things I made, I, I immediately said we had to do, I said, look, we have to wake these guys up, including ourselves, and do rehearsals um, randomly, randomized rehearsals in the middle of the night. Uh, how do you know if your stuff's squared away or the people that we're supporting are squared away, if you don't know what they look like or how they act at two in the morning when they're in a deep sleep, mm-hmm. um, how, how do you know you're not going, how do you know Jeff isn't a deep sleeper and you can't wake him up? So you need a different mechanism to wake him up via uh, a versus like the radio that you think's going to wake him up. Yeah. What if he's drinking? What if he, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so all, all these very niche things made me realize that um, in preparedness and trying to teach civilians, there's going to be an avenue of creating a sense of uncomfort, of uncomfortability, discomfort, discomfort, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Where where you, you're going to teach them and they're going to go, okay, I want to implement this, and they're going to disrupt their family's lives. Mm. And, and like when I tell people about fire safety, and we're talking specifically about uh, uh, families with kids you have to wake your kids up in the middle of the night to see how they react under a condition response. Mm. If your kids are below a certain age and there's, there's different arguments on this, but let's say they're below the age of 10 and you're giving them a condition response. Let's say it's a whistle and you blow that whistle in training in the middle of the day when they're uh, awake and cognitive, how are they going to respond at one in the morning? Are they going to wake up via the whistle and start crying because they're in fear or because they don't, they can't grasp or understand because they don't, they're not cognitive. Mm-hmm. The, all those considerations are important in talking about surf reliance yeah. and, and not enough, not enough people talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think the start point before we even get into preparation, it's like figuring out what we're going to prepare for. Yeah, I, I think we all like to do, we all like to practice the things we like, right? We just don't, it's like training on a team, right? We don't want to do combo training because it sucks, but it's it's a super important thing. I'm interested for, for without getting into anything classified, but for GRS, like did they rely on your, you know, at that time, probably 15 years in special operations as a training mechanism for that job? Or was there a training pipeline that got you ready 
to, yeah. to deploy. Like I'm sure there was some training, but yeah, there's, um, so do you have to take that military mindset and change it, flip it on its ass that, to, to kind of get guys thinking of small team, nobody's really there to help you, you know? Yeah, completely. Yeah. It, part of it, well, the first part of it is, is vetting. Hey, we're, we're vetting your resume. Mm. We're validating that you are who you say you are. Right. I mean, they've already checked. They, I mean, they call more people than I've seen in my TSSCI clearance in, yeah. in confirming like, hey, is this guy a, 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 didn't call me. a shit bag? I should have, you'd never I get know, hired. I, I know. <laughs> I'd be working the desk at, the, at, at Langley. So they do, they do the vetting process, which is validating that you are who you say you are. And there's a component of training. And here's what I'll say again, without getting into details, the, the, the idea of being somebody who is responsible as an individual for protecting people's lives versus a, a conventional or even an unconventional special operations unit is very different and something that I was like, what? And I'll give you just one specific example I could talk about. And one of these scenarios that they throw us into because they want to see us how, how we react and then what kind of tactics do we utilize and, and without being taught? There's, mm -hmm. a, there's a block of instruction, which I won't talk about, but the, in the assessment phase, literally just me running around and trying to figure out how I'm gonna uh, address this problem set. They want to see your decision making. That's right? it. Yeah, because you make a bad decision, people die. Yes. You make a good decision, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, if you're, if you're a collective member of a team of CQ, in doing CQB, you have definitive roles that are gauged based off of people's behavior, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. people's actions and behavior. Yeah. You do the opposite of the guy in front of you, right? And yeah. yeah, yeah. It, but as an individual, yeah, it's quite different because now you have to make all the decisions and, and you have no cues. You're walking through an environment where you are the cue, right? Mm. Where you're managing sound uh, perception and that is driving your cues and behavior. So. Uh, one of the scenarios was rescuing a case officer in a massive warehouse, big problem set, big, lots of angles, opposing threats, a whole bunch of shit. So I run in there, long story short, I get to the place where I need to be. I, I killed a couple of bad guys en route and I get inside of this room and I link up with uh, my CEO, my case officer. Now, after I'm linked up with him, a dude barrels through the door and I gun him down mm -hmm. proper. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I get through the whole thing and then they evaluate me and they're like, um, so there's an issue that we're, that you just did. Can you reflect back on the, on the run? I'm like, I got nothing. Like I thought I did a reasonable job. Mm -hmm. I got nothing. Um, and he goes, the guy that walked in the room and I was like, yeah, he's in a, he's in a blower suit because he, yeah. you know, it's Sims. Um, and, and I stitched him up He goes, was he armed? I was like, no, like, well, you can't shoot on our people. I'm like, you but can't? it was a, <laughs> what? But I was like, it was a hostage rescue yeah. in, in an extremist circumstance where it, there was a mass shooting yeah. and a dude's barreling aggressively yeah. Yeah. through the door. You're getting got. Yeah. I, I'm shooting. And he goes, and so I'm, I make the, <laughs> you voted buddy. You voted. Yeah. You should not have looked at me that way. I, I, are they looking for the, book answer or the real answer well, because as you're maneuvering right if you're going through a house with a lot of threats yeah if you're trying to clear every corner it's going to take you 20 minutes to get to the guy right you have to assume risk you have to clear very very quickly and haul ass 
ass. And yes. that, that's the way you would really do it, right? Yeah. Are they are they looking at, well, you didn't clear this corner. And no, you, no, no, yeah, no, 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 yeah. no. It was yeah. nothing like that. In fact, mm-hmm. the guy who ran the whole program was an SF guy. And he goes, mm-hmm. listen, he goes, I would have did exactly what you did. And most of the guys will. But in this scenario, uh, we want you to think about reducing risk by um, mitigating uh, the the what you think is a threat um, and and thinking about not taking the shot to reduce that threat. And, and he art, I, I poorly articulated. Was it, it that you didn't even think about not taking it? Yeah. Was, I mean, that, the, was yeah. that the issue? Like, well, well you didn't. I looked at hands. He didn't, I knew okay. he didn't have a gun. Right. But you didn't try to verbally but stop agri- him? Not even give him one verbal cue because right. how he came at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He kicked in the door. Yeah. And based on me, rec- me recognizing his aggressive posture yeah. And, yeah. and how he was moving towards me, I didn't want... Here, here's what I thought about it uh, in, in hindsight. I thought about it and I said, look, part of the reason I don't want to contemplate... No, I don't want to have to deal and manage a person while I'm trying to extract. Yeah, a because good if guy I'm wrestling with this guy in the ground, yeah. and somebody else comes in. Exactly. Yeah, but I don't have time. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's and there's historic case studies of of Haas's rescues and, and similar things taking place. And and so as he barreled in the room, gunning him down, he goes, "Listen, let's do it again, but I don't want you to, to engage." So he they do it again and. When I don't, I give him verbal commands. I didn't even want to give verbal, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm like, I'm in and out yeah. and I'm getting off the X because we're in the middle of a gunfight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's very, it's very um, different for us based on where we, different. what we've done, right? It's more f- police kind of thing, right? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, we're, it's weird because we're, we, we have been in those scenarios and training in real life mm-hmm. many times and um, they recognize that. Yeah, I mean, it's different, right? If I'm a combat in Iraq in an SF team and I'm hitting a building and somebody puts your hands on me, you're a combatant. You put your hands yeah. on me, you're a combatant. I'm not yeah. a police officer, right? You're getting got, like yeah. you said, right? Yeah, um, yeah but but it's interesting to see the, the change in mindset a little bit. Were they afraid that you were going to escalate it by firing? Or, I mean, I, I still think it was absolutely right. To, to fire on that guy because if he puts your hands on me and you're wrestling on the ground and somebody yeah. else comes in, you, the guy you're trying to rescue is in trouble right there. Yeah, well, in the scenario, I went back and then I, and I hope not, uh, hopefully not ruin the scenario, but there, there's one, uh, I go back to the scenario and I give him a command and he immediately listens to the command. Yeah. Part of, in my head though, as I'm extracting off the X, because this is deep in the building, the whole time I'm thinking, that dude's going to shoot me in the back. Right. Right? Yeah. So you remember in in Iraq in 07, we had, there was another, I'm not going to say the unit, but there's another unit working with us as part of the terrorist task force. We used to get up on roofs and traverse rooftop to rooftop to rooftop to get to our objective sometimes. Yeah. And there was another unit, and there was people sleeping on the roof all the time. We'd bypass them mostly. Yeah. And another unit did that, and a woman get up and shot one in the back of the head. Yes, do you remember I do that? remember yeah, yeah, yeah. So, again, you assume risk for speed, and but after that, we start flexing off in everybody, you know? Yeah. Um, well, and that's the thing, too, is the, I mean, there's there's tactical considerations for this, right, which is, Haas's, Haas's rescue crisis response, and then, um, which is moving to a crisis point, but also extraction. Like if, if a person is in, in, in a situation where they are fending for their lives and you are the only means to fend for their lives and you're in the middle of a crisis point surrounded by bad guys, mm. 
uh, which is like a hornet's nest, you're in the middle of it. Your tactics are very different than a, a conventional close quarters mm-hmm. battle HR scenario, right? Yeah. You need it, to get off yeah. the X fast. That's it. Yeah. It's, it's you're, you're compromising a lot of security for speed, um, but also in how you assess things that you're taking head on. Mm. I didn't know he was, you know, I didn't know there was a part of that where he would comply fully, but even in compliance, a, a big burly middle, that's the argument I made, right? He's, I'm like, this dude's like six, five. He's like mm-hmm. a big burly um, middle-aged male. I'm trying to extract off the X. He's aggressive in his posture yeah. in the middle of a gunfight. He's coming at me at like this way. And they're like, we get it. Just check this. <laughs> Mike, please stop arguing. Well, what's crazy is, um, I, I will say this about the staff. So professional. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, here's what I know in classifications and what I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to talk about and I'm, or I'm allowed to talk about and what I'm not supposed to talk about is that, um, the whole program in depth is highly classified. Mm-hmm. Um, my role in the program is not classified, right. but there's a whole bunch of things that I learn in tactics that I never realized existed via the, uh, um, the SOP that you're by yourself mm. as a singleton, Yeah, it, which, I, which it, one here, here's one thing I'll, I'll just lay out and we can move on from this, but I, one idea is that um, there's such thing as single man CQB. When I was an 18 Bravo, even in the SIF, my senior, um, uh, Will Lancaster, who I thought was a really good senior, like he, he loved his job, he, he was a very good shooter. Uh, he taught us very well, taught me very well on 5-1. He was on 5-1 for a period of time. He came from C-1-1, right? Um, he would run us through the house doing these, like the Ipsic style, you run to the threshold of a room and you address it by yourself. Mm-hmm. And when we did that, I was like, what? Yeah. And I was like, why are we doing this? He goes, what happens if you, if you break contact from your guys or you're moving to a crisis point and you're blowing off everything to get to where you need to be yeah. because that's the priority, hostages are dying. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. And so what, what is interesting to me is we're not taught that in special operations. We're taught the collective task before we're taught how to act as yeah, an individual. Yeah, just thinking that in hindsight, maybe that's the way it should be, right? Yeah. You do one it, man, one man, then two men, two men, then three men, then four men. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and for civilians, I think there is an application. I, I got a video on YouTube that's called "Single Man CQB," and it talks about some of those considerations. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what what self reliance is really broad. If I were to ask you what you thought. Um, maybe in like technically in capability, if you were to label somebody being self-reliant, what would that look like to you? You mean like a, like a list of the, what's maybe. the, what's the most important? Cause that's what I, I was going to say. Let's, let's lay it out. Like the number one priority medical training. Mm. It's gotta be right. Yeah. I mean, you've got to be able to statistical probabilities. You gotta, yes. You gotta be able to patch holes. Um, um, put a tourniquet on. Uh, do CPR, right? Um, you know, somebody's got a punctured lung, sucking chest. I mean, if, if you're not within like that golden hour of a hospital, you got to be able to sustain life and not do any more damage to get people and move them towards the hospital. So statistical probability of what you will need, thank, it's probably better that you need medical training before you need gunfighting training. But I think uh, uh, the number one priority, and I think we get this question a lot, 
you know, if I'm trying to be more prepared, what's, what's the things I should start with? And I, I think medical training, you think? Yeah, I think, I think that's spot on. Cause I think it's, we, we have this idea of, uh, analytically, Hey, what's the most likelihood of you having to fend for your own survival? And when, when I think about being reliant as an individual, it's being able to patch my own wounds, right? Yeah. It's being able to treat and take care of myself. And, um, it's not just, we, we both have COVID and it reminded me of how fragile human beings truly are, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That an airborne microscopic virus mm-hmm. that blows through mask that can be passed on from person to person, person in communicate, simple communication that you could f- have to fight. Your immunity has to fight for it, uh, your life. Yeah. So at, at the root of it, it has to do with health, wellness, fitness, and taking care of your own immunity and your mm-hmm. own self. But if, if that's the start point, which I think is inherent, it should be communicated about, then, then what is the reactive start point? It's gotta be met mm. because, um, the likelihood of you being in a gunfight is, is slim to none. Yeah. But the likelihood of you leaving your workplace or listening to this podcast now in your car and being in a vehicle accident and having to fight for your life and not being able to survive through the time that it takes a first responder who may or may not show up mm-hmm. is, is a consideration. Yeah. It used to be, I remember we used to get the medevac or the medical plan on every operation we ever went on and it was always self-aid first, yes. self-aid, buddy aid, aid, then the medic, right? So if you're shot while we're assaulting across the objective, you're on your own, buddy. We're not stopping to treat you. The best thing we yeah. can do is kill the people that are shooting at you. That, that's the best thing you can do for a wounded person. So it was up to you to put your own tourniquet on, to patch your own wounds and, and sustain your own life until somebody got back to you and, and give you the next level of care. So um, yeah, you could be in a car accident and, and reach over and grab your tourniquet from your visor panel and slap it on yourself and you just saved your own life. And, and it, it, I always get a little shocked about how little people know about medical stuff. Basic like stuff, right? Very basic. The stuff like, we took for granted because it yeah, was just part of our yeah. mm-hmm. foundation. And obviously there's people who know way more than me about medical shit, but um, there's a lot of people out there that, that just don't know very basic stuff like how to put a tourniquet on, how to patch a hole, how to, you know, if, you're, if your lung's punctured, how to roll, you know, get on, on your punctured side so you don't, you know, drown in your own blood and stuff like that. Um, I think medical training is, is super important and under-trained because it's just not as cool as shooting guns and, and doing CQB, right? Yeah, I, I, we just, me and Rob just um, uh, designed um, a new ankle holder for med for the basic image response kit that we, that we sell on PhilCraftSurvival.com. It's a stop the basic stop the bleed kit, mm. and it's a, a whole bunch of basic kit that you should have on your person, meaning you should have it on you right now within accessible range. Yeah, you know I carry a lot of stuff in my Patagonia bag, which is I'm staring at, so it's in an accessible range. So have that stuff readily available because it's not just about the equipment that you integrate in your life. It's the the capability doesn't come from the equipment. It comes from knowing the equipment. Yeah. So a, a lot of people in this convenience uh, OODA loop that's life now will buy what they need conveniently, have it on hand, but not know how to use yeah. it. So I, what I would do is I would, one, buy the equipment that's the right equipment, train the equipment via the resource, mm-hmm. and continue to rehearse and sustain that level of training. Uh, look, a lot of people, a lot of people 
look at things and they're looking for shortcuts. That's just how we work. But in training and aptitude and maintaining skill sets, there is no shortcut. Mm-hmm. You have to continue to drive home the basics and routinely add those, again, like uh, discomfort or discomfort to your life to make sure that you, you, you stay on top of your game. Yeah, I think if you have a medical kit in your car right now, um, pull it out, open up the contents, yeah. look at what it is, go to YouTube, look at some videos, figure out how to use each piece, and then go teach your kids. Because when you teach somebody, you really reinforce it yourself. And then have your your your, your older kids teach your younger kids. And then once they're proficient and not using each piece, then throw some some uh, you know curveballs at them, right? Yeah. Make them do it in the dark. Right. Yes, then yeah. make them do it with a headlamp first and then make them do it in complete darkness. Right. Um, make them do it in, in like, you know, uncomfortable, like, you know, in the back of the car while the car, well, maybe you shouldn't be driving no seatbelt on, but you know, you kind of, kind of change it up a little bit. So, cause it's not going to be a perfect scenario, but people buy medical kits, put them in a the car for peace of mind, but you really shouldn't have peace of mind unless you know exactly how to use each piece piece of kid in there. You remember uh, King of Queens when they're... Um, <laughs> we the, watched the shit out of that show, man. Remember it was awesome. Uh, they're on the, in the airplane. Yeah. And the oxygen mask. <laughs> 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 and Doug like, fights. Yeah. He like pushes right away and he puts it, he on, puts it on, on the ground. And then yeah. he said, and then his argument was in the video, they said, you're supposed to put it on first yeah. to support yeah. whoever it is yeah. you, you do. Yeah. And, and I, I, I always think about that because part of being self-reliance has to do with you being you understanding that concept of self-preservation means that you meaning taking care of yourself understanding how to treat your own stuff security wounds whatever it may be allows you the capability to take care of your family yeah you you can't be a defender protector sheep dog Mm -hmm. whatever term you want to use unless you're on top of your game. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I saw this. In, uh, in that, before you go on, but in that uh, King of Queens, like she was pissed at him because he did that. And he was like, there was no danger. We were on the ground. And she said, that's worse. What are you going to do when there is danger? <laughs> Eat me for nourishment? <laughs> and he said, he said, uh, you really think I'd eat you? She said, well, yesterday I didn't think that, but now I think two days in, or like an hour in a lifeboat, you'll be gnawing on my hip with land in sight. <laughs> I love that, man. It's so comical to me, man. That, that yeah. show is so great. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I think about in self-reliance as well is obviously security, right? Yeah. Um, it, it, when we when we were in the p- patrolling game, which is patrolling is a tactic to walk through the woods, right? Um, it, it could be walking anywhere. It, it's, it developed into what's called mount or what's uh, urban environments. But we had deliberate tactics that we used and security as part of that, all those tactics was the number one priority. Mm-hmm. Like it was, it was actually the number one principle. Yeah. It was always, yeah. Because it's so easy to blow off because you're hungry and tired and you want to eat and all, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah it was always driven home, driven home that security is number one priority. Yeah. So you, you didn't go into your patrol base and bed down. Yeah. You focused on security, leaving up a posture of security. So when I, here, here's the, one of the problems about people who, who oppose being self-reliant is they think that because you're focused on something that you're somehow paranoid, which is odd to me because we obviously know when you train a tactic, you train a focus, you don't become more paranoid to become less paranoid yeah. because the paranoia typically exists because 
the fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And when you don't know, when you don't know something, you become more anxious, more fearful, and then more vocal about how you, why you shouldn't do something, Mm. which I think is, 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 is an uh, obviously an oxymoron and and insane, but security doesn't have to be a, a uncomfortable and dysfunctional part of your life. Mm. Like I always love the guys who tell me, you know, I, my girlfriend hates me because I go into a, a restaurant and, you know, I'll, I'll pick it where the exit is and I'll, I'll look at everybody. I'm like, if you're doing that, you're, you're using the wrong tactics mm-hmm. because you're not making it. It should be a seamless transition. And at some point it becomes part of your standard operating procedure. Like if I go into a restaurant, I don't go, where's the bad guy? Mm. Where's this bad guy at? Hold on one second. Uh, let me look at, let me look for the bad guy. Hey, let me go scout the area. Mm. I'm not doing these things. Um, to make people around me uncomfortable, I'm staying conscious and awake of my environment, mm-hmm. which is part of security, yeah. maintaining situational awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talk about, uh, you, you, when you were a sniper instructor, teach observation. Mm-hmm. And that's like a deliberate conscious thing that you actually do. There's a tactic to it. What is you, how would you demonstrate to somebody or how would you teach somebody situational awareness like what does that even mean to you yeah i i I don't is it is it that you don't need to deliberately do these steps because you've had 20 years of special operations training Mm. or is it that it's always been inherent right because when you i think cqb is a great one right you'll have guys do runs in cqb and and we're going to train some of this stuff when you know it's one of the plans we have in 2021 but you run through the house bad guy, bad guy, bad guy, engage, engage, engage. And then you get out the other side and you'll say, uh, what, what, what was in the picture in the first room? You know what I mean? And people just get so tunnel vision that they, they didn't even know there was a picture, right? It's, it's having that, taking the blinders off and having that ability to see your, with your peripheral vision as you go through. So I think it takes a long time to train. I think, um, they, but it can be trained, but it's, I'm like that too. I don't go into a restaurant and go, okay, let me deliberately do all this stuff. I, I think I just normally do it. Right. And, uh, but maybe that, that's all the training that gives you that confidence that, that, you, you know, if something happens, you're, you're ready for it. Um, observation in itself is training in observation. There are certain techniques for training people in observation and, um, I mean, I don't know if you want me to go into those, but th- there's certain things you can look at. There's certain mechanisms for scanning. There's certain um, ways that, that that you can become better at picking out things that are wrong and, and th- that that look out of place. Um, but it's conscious, though. It, I mean, yeah, like you, yeah. you have to. It's like it, a deliberate. It, it's thing. a deliberate thing. Yeah. yeah. When, when does it become not like like you said? Like we we're not, we're pretty unconscious to it. Like mm-hmm. the way. I, when I walk into a room, I typically walk into a room and I look from left to right. Mm-hmm. And that's typically the orientation. If it, you know, if I walk into a center fed restaurant, I just look, I scan across my environment and I take the information in. Yeah. And if there's weird things, it typically is something that stands out because it's not in the pattern. Yeah. If you see a guy screaming in the middle of a restaurant, that's not normal. Yeah. So you identify things that aren't in the pattern but you don't have to go scan, 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 left, right, left, right, A, B, C, you know, yeah, doing these techniques. But I think you do if you've never done it. Yeah, right? see, that's the yeah, it, right? Yeah, so starting off and trying to consciously be more observant, uh, then maybe you do do it that way until it just becomes normal. That's true, because if yeah. I scan through glass now, mm-hmm. 
I mean, I, I like I, I do, um, I'll do grids. Like I'll just section off grids, mm-hmm. right? If it's a big uh, section or area, um, I'll typically divide it in four and I'll, I'll alpha, bravo, Charlie, bottom left, delta, mm-hmm. bottom right. And then I'll scan through alpha yep. uh, from top zigzagging down, stair stepping down. Yeah. And, but I don't think, okay, I'm going to stair step. I just mm-hmm. go boom and I do it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's because we've been trained in it. Yeah. And, and we, it's very easy to uh, set those observation exercises up and like we did one on one of the bug out courses we did, we set up like six or eight spotting scopes and we had a left limit, a right limit, and we had via 17 panels, left limit, right limit, backstop. And inside that area was just 30 items hidden and it was woods. Right. Mm. And, you know, they, they found like, I think the most somebody found they had an hour to scan and they could move from spot and scope to spot and scope because you get different angles. And I think the most somebody found was like seven. Right. But then when I walked them through and I said, okay, this, this item is hidden in deep in, in, in the, the bushes and the leaves. And then you could burn through that vegetation with your spot and scope and then they get it. Okay. This item is not hidden beside a tree. It's in the middle of nowhere. Cause people look, at items, they look at trees and rocks, and they scan yeah. certain areas. And they miss and gaps. They miss gaps in it, and, and all those teaching points. And when you get to the end, and you you show them what they did wrong, and then you recock it, and if you do it again, they really learn from it, and then they're they're, they're kind of tuned into it. You know, I remember running uh, the USUC sniper comp, and I set up a stage where it was on a rooftop, and you had to engage, I don't know, like five targets, and. I, I knew they would do this because snipers always look long because they've got scopes on their guns, but I put a target uh, like 20 feet off to the left and nobody even saw it. You know what I mean? Was that a sniper cop? Uh, yeah. I missed that target. The, no, I, I, I didn't. On the yeah, stress shoot. Yeah, it was on the stress shoot. Yeah, you yeah. Know the vehicle? Like when you ran to the vehicle now, from the building? I, I didn't run the one you Oh, you but I missed shot. it. I missed yeah, and yeah, you see, people do want, that. We still want it. We it, get the stress shoot. We yeah. took the first. So people don't do that. They look long. Yes. And they, they, with a long gun. They, yeah, with yeah. a long gun. They blow off. And there was a, an ICTF sniper shot in Iraq when we were working with them. And he was shot. He was on a rooftop and he was shot by a guy 10 feet away. With, really? With, yeah, yeah, because he's looking long, and and it's it's something that uh, uh, has to be trained out of you, right? And and look at your your surroundings. So I I think back to your original point. I think people do that deliberate process now because they're learning it, and we don't do it because it's ingrained so heavily in us yeah. that we just don't do it consciously anymore. It just happens. Maybe we should have a situation awareness class. I think so. I think so. I think we could build it into some of the the sim stuff we're going to do. Yeah. It's like, so. it's like getting trained to do trained observation, mm-hmm. right? When you, and that should be part of it, right? Yeah. Cause part of it is observation. Yeah. But yeah. having deliberate, having an actual actionable tactic in an environment that's a typically complacent environment, yeah. like a gas station, yeah. like a restaurant, yeah. like your normal routine. Yeah. I think, I think the spot and scope thing, observing with a spot and scope and, and glassing is good for, it, it comes out of that, uh, Environment and you can apply it to a different environment, right? Looking at things that are out of out of out of, uh, out of normal. Looking at things that are, are uh, you know, I mean, if you're looking in the woods, anything that's straight, there's nothing straight in nature. You're looking for these certain type of shapes. I remember when I was at sniper school, when I was a student, uh, old Rick Boucher brought in this. Uh, Do you ever see these periscope things that you can? put in your eye and you can put up in front of a window and you can look, you can observe with, observe with them without looking 
through the window yourself. Do you ever see those? Uh. They're like they're like periscope. Like it's like two feet Is long. Is it a kaleidoscope? And you just look on it, uh-huh. and it's got a camera on the top, and you can oh, yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, like a periscope. Yeah, it's a periscope. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he he brought that in. Some some company made it and sent it to school to be tested. You know, and he brought it in and he showed us. And those guys in the class going, I'd fucking shoot. If I saw that come up at a window, I'd, I'd, I'd shoot it, you know? And then later on, like a week or two later, we did an observation exercise and it was part rural, part urban. And there was like 30 items hidden. That was in the window and nobody saw it. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's so funny. It's a good teaching point. Yeah. Um, when I think about self-reliance as well, uh, there's I, like, I look at disaster um, uh, very analytically. Mm-hmm there is a associated timeline in disaster that has profound impact on the way in, in which people are likely to survive. Meaning if it's, if it's, uh, we'll call it short duration, high intensity, um, a, a head on collision, an accident where mm-hmm. people had the chance to respond to react, you, you, the constraint is time. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reaction to that constraint is it has to be spot on. If they don't have a tactic for that, then they potentially die, right? That may be, there's there's different examples of that. There's a multitude of examples, like running into a, a, a you know, I don't know, a, a polar bear on an expedition. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there, depending on how close it is to you in proximity, time is one of the biggest constraints. But what we never talk about is the long duration high to low intensity because Shackleton's expedition is a perfect example of this. You have um, Shackleton's expedition with 28 men, including himself, that over the course of 22 months Mm -hmm. are surviving where every minute and every action in that minute is, is leading to their potential survival or catastrophically leading them to their death. Uh, like you said, and we were talking about this the other day, but in that, when you look at 22 months and staying in the game, yeah. keeping your head in it, mm-hmm. at any one given point, when somebody mentally didn't have the fortitude, the only thing they had to do is just walk outside, mm-hmm. get complacent, fall asleep, they would die. They must have policed each other up, man. Yeah. They must have kept each other, their head in the game, because it would be so easy to just internally go, you know what? Especially after like, um, they went to Elephant Island and then the three guys went off and, or they, they went off in the ship and they were supposed to come back within like two months and it, it took four months and they, they pretty much thought they were done. And um, to for one of them to mentally check out, like you said, walk out, curl up in a ball and go asleep and never wake up would be so easy to, to but they must have really watched each other for that yeah. um, to keep each other you know, mentally focused. Um, incredible. There's so many cool aspects to that whole story. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I really want to get into like weird stuff, but the, the, the logistical package that went with them on the ship, like the equipment they took, the clothing they used at the time, right? Which was not Gore-Tex anything, right? Yeah. It was just like wool and stuff like that. Oil skin. Yeah, lot, man. Crazy. Yeah, reindeer sleeping bags and stuff like that. I really want to get into the equipment they used and then what they ate, you know, the diet they had, the, the um, Eating penguins and shit like crazy. You yeah, know? well, and penguin and um, seal were like a staple. And, and you know, they, they were, they, I mean, this was like uh, 1914, I think they, they set off. And people were, t- 
tough back then, but they weren't physically you think they were physically fit? Because a huge part of preparedness is physical fitness, right? Being if you're overweight, you're a liability. You're you're behind the curve right off the bat, right? If something happens, you're you're kind of at a disadvantage. So I I think part of um, preparedness is being somewhat physically fit, right? Having uh, you know being being healthy. And and back then they they weren't at the gym every day. They were just tough, hard people who. Uh, who didn't, um, they, they had strong mindset and, and they were physically strong setting out, I think. And I think that's an important part. Yeah, it's weird because they were conditioned because life was hard back yes, then, Yes, it right? was, yeah. So mm-hmm. they're, they're just living because they, to go to work, they have to walk. Yeah. To work, they're laboring and they're working. Yeah, they're not eating all this crap yeah. food with all preservatives in it and all that kind of stuff. It was like they, they, they ate probably fairly well, yeah. um, but they walked everywhere. Yeah. And their food was sustenance. Yeah. Like they were eating to sustain their life uh, to, to, to keep them healthy. Yeah. The, the, the thing I think is mind-blowing about this is we now look for shortcuts in everything. Mm-hmm. So when somebody says to me like, oh, but this CrossFit thing, and, and, and you know, I'm not a hater of CrossFit. I'm a hater of not realizing what we're doing to ourselves and, and trying to optimize the universe. So you're, so you want to do a workout that's four minutes in a workout of the day, because it's so high intense that you get all of the benefit in that four minutes. Mm -hmm. And that's an exaggeration. Some, I mean, some of the workouts are actually that, that short, but you do that short duration, high intensity, and then you could fuck off for the rest of Mm -hmm. the day. The, The problem I have in this is like, People expect result or people expect to be hardened based on this optimized take on everything, but it's not the case. You don't take a a, a pill and you look ripped on the cover of a magazine. You take, mm-hmm. you take steroids, which is just as easy, <laughs> you take a shot. but you actually have to put in the work. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think one of the things that we misidentify in, um, in, in what we understand to be reliance especially as, as it ties to uh, long-term survival, is it's not, like when I first went to SEER school, um, it, it was shocking to me because on the evasion, SEER school survival escape resist evade, yep. or, uh, it, it was shocking to me that I, I was getting, like at, for the first time in my life, I had to be lazy. Yeah. To, in order to survive. Mm. So what I what I started realizing it, when we got rolled up in what's called the RTL or something mm-hmm. like that, we're in, the, we're in the prison setting, there were people putting out work, mm-hmm. right? Part of this, oh, this yeah, scenario. That's hard. That, that's, Dude, yeah. like uh, yeah. a guy steps in front of a formation. He's like, get down and do burpees and push-ups. Yeah. And I was like, okay, play the game. Yeah. Don't do Guys anything. Guys didn't get it, man. And they were doing it. Yeah. Work. They were like knocking out a hundred pushups and they were dropping hints like crazy. <sighs> oh, these ones are strong. Maybe we're feeding them too much. Or and I'm like, dude, how do you not get it? I right? didn't do one pushup. Yeah. Cause I went yeah. to go push myself yeah. to the ground. And then by the time I touch it, they're like on your back. And I'm like, yeah. I stand up <laughs> on your belly. And there were dudes doing it. And I'm like, if you want to survive, it's about, what's that word? It's I mean, it's endurance, but it's like stamina, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah. You it's have long to term, be long yeah, term, long term stamina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a marathon, man. Um, it is. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. Freaking Sears school, man. We could tell so many stories, oh, no. but we don't want to give too much away. But it was yeah. so funny, man. Yeah, it was. What are some recommendations? Because we talked about long term survival before. What are some recommendations of things that people could put in place 
to sustain their longevity over time. And, and in this case, I think a long period of time. Okay, so let's talk about uh, prioritization. Yeah. Water and food, right? Yep. Water being most important, especially depending on your environment. You'll die with no water very, very quickly. But you can last for actually weeks or months with no food, believe it or not. I remember- and this I can go like a year. <laughs> yeah, it depends how big boned you are, I guess. Mm. But I remember the first hunger striker in Northern Ireland, I'm pretty sure he lasted 63 days with no food. Before he died. Before he died, yeah. So, um, which takes some discipline, my God, especially when they're putting food in front of you every day. Yeah. So you can, you can last actually quite a while uh, with no food, but, uh, you know, depending on your, your, your physical output, and, but you'll, you'll die quick with no water. Yeah, and this is inclusive to all, because when we talk about self-reliance and especially in longevity and sustaining survivability, it just doesn't mean uh, particularly your house, yeah, right? Because it, it, this could mean your expedition, your own journey, yeah. your overseas travel, whatever it may be, because you could find yourself in these positions of trying to sustain survivability in unexpected circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shackleton Expedition, they had provisions for the trip, which allowed them to survive a set amount of time, but had no contingencies to kill seals, penguins, and everything else. But they had the equipment and it allowed them to, to do that. Yeah. If they didn't have the rifle, for example, with the bullets that they had plenty of, they wouldn't have been able to hunt the seals and penguins. Um, I, I think especially the penguins was the first time ever that they'd been hunted mm. because they weren't used to people there. They were literally walking up to them and shooting them. Yeah. Um, and they wouldn't be able to sustain their survivability. So in the contingencies, it's not just thinking about, Hey, what am I going to store in my storage shed? Um, it's also thinking about, Hey, what, what ways am I going to be prepared to sustain survivability in the best way I can. Yeah. Um, everybody wants to put these things in prioritization lists, but it depends on your environment. Like shelter's more important than in a really, really cold environment, probably than food, right? Because you're going to die quickly if you don't have shelter yeah. in, in a really like in, in, a, in an Arctic environment or a really cold environment. So well, let's, um, what about food and water? Let, let's let's set it up for the safe home to be technical. Um, you know, in Pillars of, prepared, prepared, uh, pu- 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 pillars <laughs> of Preparedness, we line it out as uh, your person or yourself. Um, your, your vehicle mm-hmm. as an extension of a capability and your home, which is your safe home, your safe house. How much food would you stock now after reflecting back on a lot of things that happened in 2020? Um, so first water and, and the ability to, to procure water, right? To, to, to sustain and keep getting water, you know? Um, I would like to, to have three months of food. It's not, it depends on your storage capability, right? But I, I, I think if you had three months of food, at that point, you'd be able to make a decision on whether you're going to bug out and leave and go somewhere better or whether you can ride the storm, you know? Yeah. Um, would you go for more than that? Well, here's one of the considerations uh, in food. Here's a great example that I'm so stoked on the Shackleton stuff that I, I've been paying attention to specific details. One of the details is, in that cold environment, those guys to sustain body weight needed about 6,000 calories a day. Mm. And that's not, that's minimal activity. Initially, uh, during the expedition, when they 
were stranded on basically an ice cube in the middle mm-hmm. of the water in the middle of the ocean, they were doing about three hours of forced activity a day. Shackleton had given them the routine, mm-hmm. but the remainder of the time they were able to do recreational things. A lot of that three hours was spent doing main maintenance. It was uh, training dogs. It was a whole bunch of different tasks. But when you look at 6,000 calories, which is over a pound, mm-hmm. uh, an actual pound, um, it's very easy to see how difficult it would be to sustain your current body weight. There's a, there's a show called Alone, and it's a survival show where we actually interviewed the runner-up. And the winner who won that show, um, he did so, it, I'm sorry, the context of the show is whoever could survive in their individual location the longest with only a few um, uh, items. They had, to f- they had to fend for themselves, they had to, they had to uh, procure, procure food for themselves, they had to shelter themselves, everything self-sustained. The guy who won winded up bagging uh, and killing two moose. Those two moose that he killed were massive animals, 400 to 600 pounds of Mm -hmm. meat per animal. The second animal, I believe the second one, and I'm parastoring here, so it won't be completely accurate, but, but what happened is he lost the fat because he stored the fat in a separate section and a wolverine came and jacked him. Mm. When he took that, uh, yeah, I think it was a gallon bucket or something that he had uh, that he found on the island. You could, whatever you find, you can keep and procure. Um, it had um, the equivalent of about, man, I, I think it was 100,000 calories, something extreme. So he lost all that. So he started eating uh, meat, just meat. You can't sustain your own body weight. He couldn't sustain his own body weight, even being a leaner guy with just meat. Mm-hmm. Essentially, he was a carnivore diet without the fat, and his body was eating itself, mm-hmm. and he couldn't sustain anything. Was he, was he uh, moving, or was he sitting He was day? sedentary mm-hmm. the whole time. And it, w- the, the point is, when people look at food storage, their determination for what they think as an individual their food requirement is, is based on your habits. Mm-hmm. One, you, you're not gonna be as active. Or you may be super active, depending on the circumstance. What I would do is I would look to pack out. I, I would do your do your math in the food that you uh, have on shelf based on calories. And what I would do is I would do more than your allocated number of calories. I mean, in Ranger School, I had one meal a day, but that one meal was the equivalent of a, about three thousand calories. Mm-hmm. But even that, because the amount of movements and activity and stress and everything else it wasn't enough to sustain weight. I lost 30 pounds in 60 days. You you will lean down, but the key is not just substance, it's nutrition. When your body, for example, um, uh, vitamin C is a great example. Uh, vitamin C, what's the disease that you get from vitamin C? Scurvy. Scurvy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were gonna talk about it with Grand Thumb yeah, in, in, a, yeah. in an upcoming piece. Mm-hmm. But That's why we, yeah. got, we got certain funds in Afghanistan to buy fresh fruit and vegetables um, so we wouldn't have problems. Remember that? I can't remember what they call it, but yeah. Yeah, so um, supplementation is a great thing to consider. Um, I mean, it, it's a great thing to consider even in your normal life, but you need to look at that. Like you should have supplements to supplement the nutrition that you're gonna lose because people think mountain house, like a mountain house meal, I'm gonna put a mountain house meal in my storage and that's what I'm gonna eat forever. That's the worst possible option for you. One, it's got sodium. 
so highly dense that it's going to take away your hydration or your ability to stay hydrated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to overtax your system, meaning uh, your digestive system. You're not going to get proper nutrition because of the way it's digested. And it's just a bad food. You need as many natural foods as you can and dry good storage as you can. Mm-hmm. Beans, rice, uh, and, and the variety of those. Canned foods, jarred foods, foods, uh, fermented foods. Um, you could you could can meat mm-hmm. for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. That's why I think you, you're spot on because I don't think it has to do with days. I think it has to do with your budget and capacity. Mm-hmm. If I have a, a, a Connex container and and it's it's properly stored in, in temperature, and I have a large budget. I'm, why would you not fill it up? Yeah. Why would you not have it on hand? And then what I always advocate for in food storage is do like I do. I, I eat my food storage because what I do is I replenish the back end of the supply, but I push all of the uh, potentially late date expiration to the front and cycle it. That way I'm never wasting food, but I have it on hand. I don't just fire and forget. Mm-hmm. You don't want to throw food into a storage container, say, forget about uh, it. I'm good mm-hmm. and forget about it. And th- it does have an expiration. I think mm-hmm. it's generally speaking for jarred, it's one year. Generally speaking for can and steel, it's five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and that's spitballing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the ability to grow your own food, obviously, would be would be ideal too. Well, growing up in uh, Ireland... Know. I mean, you guys obviously had the potato, the great, the great famine, uh, and you guys are crushing potatoes. What, what, what is the ideology in, or I guess, what is the culture in how you look at food? It's pretty different now than when I was a kid, right? We were poor, but the food we got, like we had milk delivered every day to our house. From a milkman? From a milkman. Yep. We had bread delivered every day, which expired in like really quick, like I got here and I got bread and I have it for weeks and it's I'm like, yeah. it's amazing. It was laced preservatives. Real hard, <laughs> real hard, uh, we right? Had the, yeah, we had the hard crust bread that you cut and then we had the sliced bread as well. And it it, it, it was good for like 24 hours, like, and then it would start going moldy, right? Because really? I didn't have the preservatives. Yeah, but we got it delivered every single day. Wow. Um, I was talking about this recently, like, uh, all the houses, I don't know now, so, so don't get mad at me if I'm wrong, but all the houses were... Um, heated by coal, like, and you had like even even like houses that were built in the eighties would have a coal shed in the back where the coal man would come and dump bags of coal, dirty ass freaking fuel. How but long did the coal man live? I don't know. <laughs> Compared to the milkman, dirty as fuck. Like, like, yeah, but uh, they dump coal and you you heated your house with coal. Like growing up, we we didn't have central heat. We had a, a pot belly stove in the kitchen. That, all that was the, coal fed. Yes, coal. Yeah. Oh yeah, and we had a pot belly stove in the kitchen. It sounds like the 1800s. Well, and then we had a, a fireplace in the sitting room, and that was it. We had no heat in the house, right? So you wake up in the morning, you'd be like, oh, you can see your breath. <laughs> wow, yeah. dude. Uh, yeah, no yeah. insulation. It was very, uh, uh, I'm sure we had some insulation, hey. you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it sounds so primitive, but it, it wasn't that bad. But um, but you didn't you didn't keep foods. Did you guys keep, keep food stores nah, and dry food? Not really. That no. had to do with poverty, right? I mean, most yeah, people, we were yeah. poor. Like we were living day to day, right? So, and and there was fourteen kids and two parents in my house, sixteen people in a small house, right? And 
dude, we consume, we crush chow. Like, like that many people, we crush chow. So uh, you're constantly replenishing. And I guess when you think about it now, it's like insane. And we had no car. <laughs> and like my mother went on the bus to get groceries. Wow. Like she took a couple of us with us to carry bags. And, and uh, you got the main stuff from the grocery store and then you, you bought from the local store, which probably costs a fortune. But yeah, there was no long-term storage or anything like that. No, we, we didn't do it. No, we, we hunted like growing up. We killed rabbits and pheasants and pigeons and ate them uh, as part of, of uh, sustainment. So that, that was a normal part of, of uh, the diet as well. I, I think part of self-reliance when looking at food and water um, or, or just any kind of provision is um, adding the hunted game to your diet. Yeah. One, it's beneficial in health, but it's also a great way to establish a position in your own self-reliance and your family's self-reliance um, and understanding how it equates. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when you kill, let's just say you kill, you know, a small game animal and you procure a hundred, a couple, even on the big scale, a couple hundred pounds of meat. That is so substantial yeah, in like so many ways. You're talking about that guy in the TV show and he killed like two moose, but he had the skills to kill it, to skin it, yeah. to harvest all the meat. Like he had skills. Yeah. Even to store um, it. Well, to even store to store it. it. Yeah. 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 No, one of the guys who was on my team, like he grew up in Missouri or somewhere and he was, he was telling me like he used to kill squirrels with a pellet gun and make a squirrel stew. It's and so good. Yeah, I've never had that. It's so good. Yeah, I had a road. I had a roadkill squirrel in Cedar School. Yeah, wasn't that good? Oh, <laughs> the stories of those those that food stuff. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's important one to take the food um, and and understand what you're eating and make it a part of uh, that self reliance aspect, a part of your life. That's why I think hunting is so important. Mm-hmm. But also, when you look at sustaining yourself on a small scale, I mean, we've been talking to Didi about, um, uh, she's a, she's somebody who's doing some content with us because she does urban agriculture. You know, Amber's, uh, you know, Amber's more rural because she mm-hmm. lives on a farm. But when you take these ideas of um, adding to your food menu, so you're not dependent on a system mm-hmm. like Walmart, when that system gets shut down yeah. and then your options are nil, you have no options mm-hmm. because you didn't think about it. But when you start including things like even sprouts, even broccoli, mm. um, cabbage, lettuce, whatever it may be, something that's easy to grow, you are headed in the right direction and that's super beneficial. Yeah, uh, Chickens, I, I mean- ch- Chickens are great. Eggs yeah. is a huge thing. Eggs are huge. I, I, uh, I want somebody from Ireland to, to send me a Irish army MRE. Because I want to see what it's like now. I bet you it's good. I, yeah, it was really good when I was. There was only four choices, but it was a twenty-four hour ration. Was so it uh, fried potatoes, sweet go. potatoes, Guinness, <laughs> Guinness? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was actually really good, and the meal in it was like um, it was like a meal on a plane almost yeah, like yeah, yeah. tinfoil you know and we, we had cheese and meats yeah and it had a little can of orange juice right to, to keep your bowels moving and stuff yeah. like that i just like to see it now it'd just be interesting to to pull it apart and see what's in it now because uh, we're so used to american mres aren't they so aren't american mres so weird yeah. So, yeah there's there's massive amount of choices which is good yeah um 
But it's so weird to me. Yeah, I've had German. Have you had German MREs? They're amazing. Yeah, yeah, They're so really good. good. The yeah. KSK guys were giving me German. We were, I was like trading with them. Yeah, they probably loved the American ones, did they? They did. Yeah, which is weird. Like, yeah. I, I the fact that you could open an MRE and it's like a cheese plate. Yeah, where you have like meats and crackers and mm-hmm. cheese. I love that. Yeah, because it's it's more closely connected to whole food versus mm-hmm. when you get um, anything in the American military, yeah. chili like, mac. Like there's bread in the American one. Yeah. You might as well eat the cardboard box that comes Disgusting. in, man. It's nasty. Yeah. Gross. So, <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, yeah, if anybody wants to send us some MREs from another country, that'd be badass. That would be cool, yeah. man. Uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about water because water procurement, most people focus, like I've seen people do this and, and I, I'm not uh, at all recommending this, they'll go in and they'll buy as many gallons of water as they can Mm -hmm. and they'll just store it. There's inherent problems and flaws in that. Um, One, um, when you store water like that, it actually has a shelf life. Water actually has a shelf life that's that's stored like that. But when you have water, uh, it takes up a lot of space. Um, Water by the pound or by the gallon weighs 8.4 pounds compared to gasoline that weighs six pounds. You're taking 8.4 gallons of water in weight, which slows you down. When we were in reconnaissance, um, which until my latter days of like understanding how this really worked in real life, we were loading out our basic load of water on our person in our rucksacks. Mm -hmm. And we were carrying 30 pounds of water plus procuring it is almost more important and fil- filtrating it and um, st- not sterilizing it, but uh, purifying it mm-hmm. is more important than anything else. Yeah. So if you, if you want to, if you want to collect water, that's fine. But like as a natural collection, like these, these gallon uh, rain collection devices, really simple, really cool, but have a means to contain it. If you don't have a means to contain it or to even boil it, then you can't do either. Yeah, simply yeah. you can't carry enough water. It used to it used to make me laugh in North Carolina. There's a hurricane coming, and people are buying water like crazy. Yeah. Like you can't find water. I'm pretty sure you're getting some water with you're that hurricane, get a crap man. Ton of water. Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah, but but you know, depending on your environment, obviously in some environments you do have to carry a lot of water. You know, in, in a hot desert environment, it's harder to procure. But a lot of places, it's fairly easy to procure and fairly easy to um, to sterilize to, to make it safe to drink. Yeah. Yeah. Like Shackleton on the Antarctic expedition, his guys were putting in their tin cups because they all had tin cups. Mm-hmm. They were all putting. Uh, ice into the tin cup and then using their body heat to warm it to get a few sips mm. because uh, uh, there's a there's actually a um, depending on where you're at a formula for ice and then how it, it melts or snow and how it melts down to water you'd be really surprised at if you take I mean just take a snowball and then put it in a tin cup you'll only get a little, very tiny amount of water. Mm. So these guys are dealing with that situation and taking sips at a time just to stay adequately hydrated. Mm. And you you burn, um, and there's there's cases of this, but, um, and there's exception to this rule, but you typically use more water perspiring in cold conditions than you do in warm conditions. Yeah, people find that shocking that you can dehydrate in in cold conditions. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. All right, moving on. All right. Uh, shelter. You want to talk about shelter, or do we already hit that? Yeah, I mean, just a little bit. Like I it related to the safe house. I mean, shelter isn't just a consideration of like the roof over your head. Mm-hmm. 
I, I once lost my heat in Colorado in my Colorado Durango house. And it was 17 degrees in the front of my house, mm. 17 degrees in a house yeah. that was made. Of, it was a cabin, yeah. but there wasn't good insulation, crap ton of windows. Yeah. I, I could have froze to death in did my own fireplace. Home. I did. Uh, I slept. I saved you. Huh? Well, <laughs> the crappy thing is the fireplace was in the front of the house where I lost all the heat. Yeah. So in order to stay warm in that room, because there's no insulation, I had to stay right on top of the fire. Yeah. So not only did I stay on top of it, but I had to feed it all night. So I didn't get any sleep because I would freeze. And then when I went into the back of the house to like commit to going, you know, I'm just going to get in, uh, uh, under the blankets. It got too cold because it was it was sub freezing mm-hmm. in the back of the house, mm. and that's just in America. Yeah. So it's just not just about um. It's about uh, having the right shelter, which includes insulation, ability to heat, and it, it dives into a couple other topics we're talking. Yeah, about. yeah. We, we've uh, we've taught this in courses on how to build shelter outside and build a fire that reflects off the off the shelter and and it's open, but it, it keeps you uh, it keeps you really warm. I remember doing uh I did a mountain leadership course in Ireland one time in Northern Ireland, and uh, we were hiking. There's like six of us or eight of us or something, and we were hiking across the mountains. Pouring rain, it was freezing cold, it was miserable. And they sat us down in like groups of four, and we put like that basha type material, like a big huge poncho, over the top of us, and like tucked it underneath us. And we had it right in the middle, and we ate chow, and it was badass, man. Yeah, it was such warm. a morale booster, and and we we just. Sharing heat, basically, but uh, yeah, shelter's huge. And again, in some environments, it's more important than food because you you will die real quick in, in uh, if you don't have shelter. All right, fuel at your house. Oh, see, so a, a lot of people, you have to understand how your house is fueled. Many people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Like I've asked the question in classes before, and I'm shocked at how many people they're like, "Uh, I think," and like oh, you have to know especially if you want to plan for the contingencies. A lot of homes now are fed and fueled by propane, propane water heaters, propane heat, propane appliances. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a a standard propane system, that is the fuel that fuels a lot of the systems in the house. Um, And and then you have a combination of um, taking care of the electricity which if it's done by the city is different than it's done uh, via generator, obviously. And then how you're fueling all the systems in place. A 500 gallon, and this is, this is on average, a 500 gallon system for a normal family, three beds, two baths, the typical, with isolated instances of using that propane to fuel a generator will only last a few days. We're talking probably three to six days is the average. I know this because I've experienced it. Um, um, I've, I've researched it, but I've also experienced it. Where the I had a backup generator. Um, Generac was the name of the company. And it's 17 kilowatts, uh, a lot of power, but it uses propane. But it also uses the five ha- 500 gallon system. A lot of systems are tied to fuel accounts. And a lot of people rent those tanks from the companies. So what I recommend you do right off the bat is buy your tank. There's an option to buy. There's ways that you could buy your own tank and then have it imported. Don't have the company, don't have a company owning anything that you own on your property. Um, that's part of this reliance is cutting the umbilical cord from the institutions that con- that control us in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um, because they have the ability to control us because we're depending on them. 
get your own um, system and then have that system uh, in, in, in use as a contingency because most people don't, like if you think right now, do you have a propane tank in your house? Do you know where it is at on the gauge? And if the answer is, well, the guy comes every couple of weeks, you don't know how much fuel you have on hand. Mm-hmm. Likely, you're, likely you have less than half a tank, which is if you have 500 gallons, which is pretty big, um, then, then you're only three to six, you're only a few days from running out of complete fuel and having no options. Mm-hmm. So the first thing you need to do is get a hold and a grasp of what you do have. Cut independence from everybody uh, that's a company that's um, sourcing you as a stream of revenue and taking away your capability. And then have contingencies, a multitude of contingencies. Propane is really good because it's a clean fuel. It's it's easy to find and procure. Um, But there should be redundancy in your systems. If you run off of propane and you have a generator, I recommend you not have a propane uh, fuel generator because if you have the redundancy, like if you have gasoline on storage, that provides fuel for your car, all your motorized devices, as well as providing a, a secondary backup to where what happens if you run out of propane. So have these redundant systems in place, meaning the answer isn't, there isn't a one-all be-all answer because there's so many options. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how much it costs to uh, fill a 500-gallon? Super expensive. What was it? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can get so pricey. I can't remember the price per gallon, but well, one, you can negotiate that price with the, mm-hmm. with the companies because mm-hmm. uh, it's a free market and, and only a few companies represent whatever um, uh, companies they represent. So there's probably, there's likely a few options in your town. Um Man, what I would do is like get as much propane as you can on hand in backup. Mm. Propane could be used in overlanding. It could be used in camping. It could be used in RVs and and uh, motorsports. It could be used to fuel a car. Yeah. I mean, there's propane mm-hmm. system uh, fuel yeah. cars. I, I'm a big proponent of propane, but I also want you to have fuel on hand. Remember, um, your capability is limited by your fuel, and, and especially in mobility. So if you have a sexy $100,000 rig, it's all built out and you have a quarter tank because you only put it, uh, uh, fill it up when you got a quarter tank. If you're compromised in your security or something happens, you have a $100,000 brick mm. and you have no options. Mm-hmm. You have to keep fuel on hand. Mm-hmm. Um, we we kind of talked about medical stuff, but we haven't talked about meds, like medications and stuff like that. If, uh, if, thing, if you were locked in and you, you had a... We weren't able to move for a while. Do you have enough medication and, and first aid supplies to sustain you if something happens, somebody got hurt, you know? Well, I, I mean, this is for both of our examples. The best example of how I've seen this done right is a fire base in Afghanistan. When the medic goes into a fire base in Afghanistan, they set up a med station or aid station. The aid station is typically for U.S. members only, but it, it's typically used for indigenous forces as well, people who shot, injured, whatever it may be. But I I remember my 18 Delta having so much shit in there mm-hmm. and using it routinely. Now, that's occupied um, behind enemy lines for yeah, that's Americans. Yeah, that's actually a program of record kit. Yeah. That aid What's case. it called? 
tax set? Or t- uh, yeah, something like that. Something yeah, 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 yeah. So, so uh, it was funny because they kept issuing that even when we weren't running these big fire bases in Afghanistan. The guys were like, I've nowhere to put all this shit. But it was a great kit for that purpose right there. Yeah, it had everything. Uh, the people have asked me, um, you have prescription medications. When I was in, uh, when I was a contractor overseas, I would stock up on all medications because in foreign countries, you don't need a prescription to get specific things. Mm. Like you don't need, you could walk into a, um, a Pharma- any, any pharmacy in, in the, in the world for the most part and get antibiotics. Mm-hmm. When America, because of the corrupt system that yeah. is the medical system, mm-hmm. um, you have to get a prescription from a doctor, which mm-hmm. is insanity, to yeah, me, right? Yeah. Um, part of it's regulation, part of it is uh, safety, whatever. What I want people to understand is a lot of animals that are treated, included big, big horses, for example, are typically treated with the same antibiotics as human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my refrigerator right now, I have a huge bottle of basically penicillin. That's because that's my contingency for antibiotics uh, if something happens. It, I, I've been in Africa where, um, you know, our driver had a heart attack and we had a kick in the doors of a pharmacy to get beta blockers to sa- save his life because the hospitals were, were inept. They weren't capable of treating people with simple, simple ailments. You have to look at all your ailments and then look at how you're going to sustain um, all those things that happen to you, like colds, like viruses, like mm-hmm. bacterial infections, and treat those things. Mm-hmm. People don't think you could die from. Yeah, they don't a go away infection. themselves. Yeah, they yeah. don't just go away. Most of them, right? You got you got to treat it with antibiotics. Yeah, well, bacteria is the worst one because when when you get a bacterial infection, if you don't know how to treat it by keeping it clean, for example, um, and you get abs an abscess, or you get. Um, um, you get something like a, a an infection that goes into your blood. That's in, that will kill you in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. That ki- that kills people the fastest. I mean, mm-hmm. bacterial infections over history and time have killed more human beings than anything else. Yeah. That's why beer was a big thing back then because it, it was bacteria that killed all the things that would kill you mm-hmm. in the water. Mm-hmm. So uh, really think about that because if you get giardia and you get a cellulitis, for example, and you don't have means of treating that, you'll just simply die. Mm. A, a horrible death, by the way. It's insane. <laughs> and, and lastly, like all these things and all this storage and all this equipment is going to be taken from you if you don't have some mechanism of security, right? We're talking about a bad situation where resources are limited and your neighbor, who's like really cool, may come over and try to take your shit, right? And you may have to defend yourself. So some sort of security, guns, bullets, and skills to, to be able to uh, employ them, pretty important, right? Would you set your... Uh, we, we've talked about this before, and I, and I don't have the right uh, housing situation to set this up. But um, when you look at a fire base, for example, we, we actually build fire bases based off of base, fire base camps. Yeah from Vietnam. Yeah, and we, we built the base defense plan as, as 18 yeah. Bravos, yeah. Yeah. Um, would you set up your situation like that, given the right housing circumstance? You're, you're in a rural environment, you got a piece of land, and you have the opportunity to set yourself up for uh, physical security. 
would you do that? I'd like to have a, and we, we talked about this earlier on, I'd like to have a compound, like, like to have, and it sounds like nut job, but to have a wall around my property that gives me like standoff, I, I, I would love to have that, 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 you know, somebody coming in there has to, has to cross or breach a wall to get into my inner kind of area. That, that's what I would like if I could. What's the, what's the acronym? A, a COCA? Observation, yeah. cover, concealment. Uh, fields of fire, fields key, of fire. key terrain. Key terrain. Uh, avenues of approach. Avenues of yeah, approach. Yeah, so yeah. So there's, like when I think about uh, the best practice in security and physical security as an individual at a gas station or protecting and defending my home in physical security, to me, obstacles in terrain mm-hmm. um, are the best practice. And and what I realized, you know, in building fire bases and setting up physical patrol bases, you you don't have. You could be very creative and utilize elements of the environment you're in. Yeah, like like you said, like a fence. Mm-hmm. A fence is an obstacle. When a bad guy comes to either deliberately take what you have or break into your house, um, when they come through that fence, you're forcing them to an intersection mm-hmm. where they, they have an option. A choke point, yep. Mm-hmm. They, they have one specific option. They could continue mm-hmm. where they bypass your fence or they could stop. And if they continue, that's when you are understanding, like comprehending, maybe this person has ill intent. Mm. They made it through my gate. They made it through my fence. And now they're trying to get through my door. Okay, now now you know you're you're mitigating risk along the way by putting the obstacles in place, but you're also uh, saving yourself time in that compressed timeline. Yeah, and you can channelize you know, them too with with even uh, natural obstacles like a lake or, or a stream. You know, you can you can channelize them through to a position where you have better observation, mm-hmm. right? Because- Fields of fire. Yeah, and I wasn't gonna say that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's because like I've done reconnaissance where I'm looking for an OP, watching a target, and if I get a position to sit in where there's a, 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 a lake between me and the target, I still have observation, but if I'm compromised, it's gonna slow them down maneuvering on me, right? Because yeah. I've put an obstacle in between me and the target. Um, it's the same thing. Walk, watching The Walking Dead infuriates me. <laughs> the, like when I think about the basics, mm-hmm. the, the medieval moat, you have a, you have a canal, which mm. is a ditch that's, that's literally around the castle that has crossed, you know, spikes where yeah. when you fall in from either direction, you're hitting a spike yeah. that's deep enough to where you can't get out of it. That has some kind of fuel accelerant that where if you have to ignite the ditch, you can. Mm-hmm. And and then by the way, after it's done burning, you could light it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is beyond me. Like build a moat around you, do punji sticks or some yeah. kind of obstacles inside of it, even wired to get them tangled up in. Mm-hmm. And then and then if you have to have a have a firing point where you could light one spot on the ground, and it it completely inflames the entire circle mm-hmm. or the ring of fire. Mm. Why? That's <laughs> basics. That's like one one But it'd be, the, the, the whole show would be over in, in one season. Yeah, no. Like, okay, we figured this zombie thing out. We're yeah. done. <laughs> this Green Beret came in here in five minutes. There's no show now. You have no future. <laughs> I know. Like when, when they're in the prison, they get attacked and they all yeah. run away. Where's your black and gold plan, man? Where's your caches of weapons and ammo outside yes. in case you? Have, yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> well, the 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 prison thing's a great example because, like, when you there's something called grazing fields of fire, right? 
the, the great thing about grazing fields of fire is that when you set up a field of fire, you want to be able to affect as much of that terrain as possible without elevating or maneuvering the gun. Mm-hmm. So in one position, if you could flatly parallel with the earth, gun down everything that you see, that's optimal. But when you start elevating your position, you take away that ability to affect more uh, terrain. Mm-hmm. Now, you can affect specific targetry because you have more observation from a higher point, but you have to you have to manage your uh, T&E uh, you're traversing an elevation more intently. So it might be a different uh, weapon system, like a, I don't know, long range rifle maybe. Mm-hmm. So when I see them get to higher positions and they have complete observation of everything they see and they miss everything, <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> Why am I watching this for 10 years? <laughs> 10 seasons, yeah, 10 yeah, years. Yeah, and they, they haven't learned one lesson. I know. Rick I was know. fucking shit up, man. Rick he was. Rick is just a... Rick is like a, a couple Navy SEALs I know, man. <laughs> was he in the Navy? Just kidding. Just kidding. Mm-hmm. All right, man. We did a long podcast on that one. All right, cool. Self-reliance. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can see, there's a lot to it. There is. And and uh, we're going to redouble our efforts in, in this area in 2021. Yeah, the education process is is uh, is much. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, one of the things I uh, talked to my marketing guy about was um, um, giving people this homesteading education funnel where, hey, if you want to know how to grow your food, I, I'm not a big ag guy. I don't have a green thumb. Um, I want to learn how to do that stuff too. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting with Didi, Amber, Siobhan down the road, uh, we could start learning that stuff from experts who do it. Yep. I mean, you don't, when we look at assets, skill sets, value, yeah, we can run a gun. We're those guys. Mm-hmm but we're not the gals or guys that understand ag. You need those people in your family, in ne- your network, in your network mm-hmm. to be able to uh, educate. Yep. Um, we'll provide that education for 2021. We got a lot of content to come. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something I was supposed to do. Rob said, hey man, make sure you, something, I'm gonna mess that up, man. Locals? No. no. Something. Oh, something about loadout. Uh, Never mind. Oh, the kit bags. Yeah, we yeah. we we have a, we have these um, we have these loadout kit bags that mm-hmm. are uh, based on liters, uh, eighty liters, forty liters, and twenty liters, um, with the idea of creating a loadout suite in capacity. It's not the capability because there's nothing in them, um, but we are going to give an option where we load these things out. Mm-hmm. So we have a loaded and an unloaded, um, and and trying to be all inclusive, meaning. We want to have solutions instead of recommendations all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. We want to provide some solid foundational solutions. Yeah. Yeah. So that like the 80 liter is, is like the one that goes in the back of your vehicle with, with heavier recovery equipment stuff like that. Then the 40 liter is your sustainment. And then the 20 liters, like your EDC type thing, actually pretty cool bags. I'm I'm, I'm excited about that 20. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's got a back strap, almost like a, an EDC, um, the one that I carry, mm-hmm. um, but it's ours, which is cool. Mm. But we're going to come out with a new EDC pack as well because it needs to be done. Yep. All right, man. That's all I got. All right. You got you anything too. else? You're about to fall asleep. Where does that motto? What? You are your own first response was the first motto. Yeah. What's the new motto? You're the name guy. You named Amcon. You probably named Phil Crow. Like all these I names. Name Phil Crow. You came up with um, that name in Ireland. Um, 
don't know. What was the name of your, your, you had a survival company in Ireland. What yeah, was it was like it? Survival Outdoor Pursuits, SOP, like Army SOP. Yeah. 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 That's so awesome. Long time ago. Come on, man. We need a, like a, th- uh, Mike from Last Line of Defense said, Sir th- Thrival. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to work. <laughs> no. We'll, we'll come up with something. Okay. All right, man. All right. Better.